brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts, offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Every single one of these laws was introduced and supported by one of the Senate Democrats. And so they all are working to protect their pieces of legislation. This isn't Virginia LCB's Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. This is Linwood Lewis's Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. The problem that I see in this state is uh, sure as hell isn't critical race theory. That's a lot of crap. It's a lot of crap. It's a lot of crap. It's a lot of crap. On this episode of Pod Virginia privilege promotes mediocre white men. We take a look at the environment for environmentalism. We are made uncomfortable. We're joined by Virginia League of Conservation Voters Executive Director Michael Town. The Republican caucus in the House, some of them are really gunning for these laws and we're going to have to uh, do everything we can to defend them. We talk about that controversial nominee for Secretary of the Environment. I don't think the things that I did at EPA were covered very well by the press, by the press, by the press, by the press, by the press. We even consider some inherently divisive concepts. Privilege walks, privilege bingo, putting children into situations where they're playing as the victim and a supremacist. All that and so much more on this episode of Pod Virginia. I'm Michael Pope. I'm Thomas Bellman. And this is Pod Virginia, the podcast that takes you inside Virginia politics. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Michael Town of the Virginia League of Conservation Voters. He'll give us a scoop on efforts to ditch the Clean Economy Act, leave the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, and strip the Air Pollution Control Board of the power to regulate air pollution. Yeah, he'll also give us his reaction to the nomination of Trump's EPA chief as Virginia's environmental secretary. More on that in a minute. But first, this is the part of the show where we recognize our new Patreons. Thomas, who have we got this week? This week, a big thank you to Leah Freemau, who is our newest patron in the donors circle. We very much appreciate your support. Leah, by the way, Michael, is a co-host of a podcast called Renegade Capital, And Renegade Capital is the activist's podcast for finance and investments, and they interview thought leaders who fight against the racist, sexist, and exclusive norms established by traditional financial and capital systems. I listened to a few of their episodes, and I highly recommend it if you're seeking actionable tips and tools to use your money to create the world in which you want to live. And Michael, as if that weren't enough, Leah also works at Virginia Community Capital, a new Virginia Community Development Financial Institution, or CDFI, which has a $10 million fund for small business lending authorized by the General Assembly in 2021. I think we should definitely circle back to that in a future episode. But thank you so much for supporting us. And if you are a regular listener to Pod Virginia, consider supporting the show for as little as $3 a month. We also have sponsor and underwriter opportunities available for interested organizations and businesses. Okay, let's get to the news. 
This week, the Senate is expected to take up the controversial nomination of Andrew Wheeler to be Secretary of Natural and Historic Resources. The former EPA chief for the Trump administration testified before members of the General Assembly last week, and he presented himself as someone who has reduced air pollution and cleaned up Superfund sites and even increased transparency in government. He also went out of his way to show deference to senators who hold his fate in their hands. If I'm confirmed as a secretary, I will execute the laws that the legislature passes. I will not create new laws on my own. I know the difference between the two roles. Senate Democrats are hoping to reject the nomination, which is actually very rare. But in order to do that, they'll need each and every member of their caucus, and they might have a rogue member. Senator Joe Morrissey is a Democrat from Richmond. Now, check out this exchange between Senator Morrissey and Andrew Wheeler. What I've heard today, particularly things that are important to me, all sound good. Why do you think you are that lightning rod? Um, first of all, I don't think the things that I did at EPA were covered very well by the press. Now, Thomas, there was a lot of press bashing in the conversations with Andrew Wheeler. At one point, he told this extended anecdote about a press conference that he had at the EPA where they were announcing like grants for school systems to get like clean power buses. And he was trying to get a, some news organization to come and, and apparently... The news organization told the comms person at the EPA, we're never going to write a positive news story about the Trump EPA, so I see no reason to go to the press conference. Actually, I, I'm skeptical that that actually happened because <laughs> reporters don't actually say things like that. But um, so there was lots of press bashing. Um, going back to Morrissey here for a second, the, this is has everybody speculating about what Joe Morrissey might end up doing. And you know who really loves this, Thomas? Joe Morrissey. He loves being in this position where he can decide the fate of everything and everybody's eyes are on him. And I think what we're heading for is kind of an epic floor debate here where they're going to, you know, pull his name out of the block and then they're going to have like, you know, first reading, second reading, third reading. So when they get to the final vote, it's actually going to be a vote on Andrew Wheeler. All the, you know, all the D's, but Morrissey are going to be lined up on one side and all the R's going to line up in favor of him. And there's going to be this very dramatic moment where, where Senator Morrissey stands up at his desk and gives a speech and announces how he's going to vote. And it really could go either way. You heard from the audio just there that he has some positive things to say about Andrew Wheeler. So he, he might be a yes, but then again, he might be a no. And uh, so lots of drama there with Joe Morrissey. Um, what do you make of the the Wheeler nomination? Where do you think this thing's headed? Well, I do think that Joe Morrissey is enjoying being the center of attention while he uh, gets to be. And, you know, Michael, your guess is as good as mine. Does Morrissey come home and vote with the Democrats at the end of the day? Traditionally, he does. But he also could very well um, be the senator who wrecks the Democrats' chances of blocking Andrew Wheeler's nomination. A couple of controversies from when Andrew Wheeler was the head of the EPA. So during the campaign, Wheeler and a few of the other environmental agency heads were frequently touring swing states uh, right ahead of the election and raising questions about whether the administration was improperly using government resources to boost the president's reelection bid. Government ethics experts were concerned about the travel of those officials uh, and using them to win votes for Trump in key battleground states. And a letter came recently from 150 ex-EPA officials. They worked under both Republican and Democratic administrations, and they asked the Virginia senators not to confirm Andrew Wheeler. They said, quote, as EPA administrator, Mr. Wheeler pursued an extremist approach, methodically weakening EPA's ability to protect public health and the environment, instead favoring polluters. Mr. Wheeler also sidelined science at the agency, ignored both agency and outside experts, rolled back rules to cut greenhouse gases and protect the climate, and took steps to hamstring the EPA and slow efforts to set the agency back on course after he left office. Those are pretty damning accusations from a bipartisan set of bureaucrats. 
Yeah, you know, during the the interview with the senators, um, there I was expecting th- th- that kind of back and forth where people would the senators would kind of present him with things that they didn't particularly like, and uh, there wasn't really a whole lot of that. Thomas, I mean, um, Jennifer McClellan said, you know, I wrote the Clean Economy Act. Uh, you're you're not going to overturn it, are you? Or like, what do you what do you want to do with the Clean Economy Act? And and he basically said that. Uh, he hasn't really decided yet. And then one of the other senators asked him if he be- if he believed in climate change. And he acknowledged that, yes, in fact, he does believe in climate change. So there weren't really a lot of moments where the senators were presenting him with things they didn't from his background that they didn't particularly like. Um, so I, I don't know what to make of that. It wasn't a very confrontational hearing with the senators. Um, and, and Wheeler really did get to make a case for himself, you know, like he really did talk about like he presented himself as someone who has done all these wonderful things for the environment over his career. And he had specific examples, too. It wasn't like he was just making that up. And so uh, I, I, I mean, yeah, I hate to just come back to Morrissey again, but uh, that's really actually where, where this whole debate comes down to is uh, are the people who are concerned about Wheeler's past going to be persuasive to Morrissey or is Yunkin and his people going to be more persuasive to Senator Morrissey? Um, I, and I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, do, you, do you have any thoughts on, on what Joe Morrissey might end up doing? <laughs> I have no idea what Joe Morrissey's going to do. But Michael, I will say that the Senate is not traditionally all that combative of a body. Yeah, that's true. You know, and they understand how uncommon it is for the legislature to reject an appointment from the governor. So they could very well be just playing the long game here. The other thing I would say, too, is if they come out of the gate combative, then they are setting an expectation that they will stay combative. And it would set off an entire other string of events and accusations and tit for tats. If they present themselves as politely listening and having a decent, humane conversation with this man, and then choose not to nominate him, they can frame it so that it does not appear to be vitriolic or partisan in nature, and rather the Senate genuinely believed that he was not well-suited for the job. Well, you know who also has some thoughts about the nomination of Andrew Wheeler is Mike Town of the League of Conservation Voters. So you want to stay tuned to the podcast because you will hear his perspective later in the show. Also in the news, the phrase critical race theory is perhaps as divisive as it is elusive. It does actually have an academic definition, one that we outlined in detail on this podcast last year, but that was largely beside the point on the campaign trail. Now that the new administration is taking over, the governor's pick for education secretary, Ami Gadara, is giving members of the General Assembly a better picture of what the new governor wants to ban from the classroom. We're talking about inappropriate things like privilege walks, privilege bingo, putting children into situations where they're playing as a victim um, and and a supremacist. Those are completely inappropriate ideas. Now, Thomas, I have to admit that I had never heard of a privilege walk until she mentioned it in her testimony to the Senate Education Committee. Have you heard of this thing? Mm, Not referred to as a privilege walk, but I do recall object lessons where people were separated based off the color of their eyes. Well, this privilege walk, uh, I had to Google it. Uh, It's an exercise where students have to stand in a line and then they take steps forward if they're in a privileged class. You go through rounds of this sort of thing. So you might take a step forward if you're right-handed and then you might take a step forward if English is your first language. And at the end of the exercise, after you've done several rounds, you get a sense of your relative privilege by how far you've walked. So um, that's the privilege walk. Privilege Bingo is a, is a similar thing, uh, pretty self-explanatory. There are squares and you sort of play bingo with them. It, privilege bingo recently caused a huge stir in Fairfax County where Supervisor Pat Herity tweeted a privilege bingo card that had squares for like being white or being Christian. One of the squares even said a military kid, uh, which created a controversy of its own, right? So like are military kids a privileged class? The whole exercise of recognizing and identifying privilege can be uncomfortable. Now, Senator Gazala Hashmi of Richmond says schools play a very important role in teaching students to be critical. 
to engage with challenging ideas, which is in fact the purpose of education, is to challenge us and to make sure that we are made uncomfortable. Now, Thomas, the Senate Education Committee this week is going to be considering a bill that would prohibit schools from teaching inherently divisive concepts. Um, and so they they actually have a definition for inherently divisive concept, which is that it violates the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, I don't think that bill is going to get past the Senate Education Committee. So during all this discussion of critical race theory, which we've had on the show several times, it's been this kind of empty promise. You know, we're going to ban this thing that's not really taught in school, so it doesn't matter. But now Gadara is actually giving us a much more fulsome window into what they actually want to ban, privilege walks and privilege bingo. She calls those things completely inappropriate. Is that a fair way to look at those things? No, it's not an appropriate way to think about that, Michael, because if you're trying to ban people from being able to think critically, you're barking up the wrong tree. Well, they would say they want people to think critically. I mean, Gadara actually said that as, I mean, explicitly in her in her comments. She wants students to be able to learn you know, how to think critically, not what to think, but how to think. Right, by restricting what they can even learn in the first place to have input on what they would be thinking and concluding. What I would say is teach the whole damn history, the good, the bad, and the impacts down the line so that people can see how certain actions and attitudes in history impact other areas of the world. I think Yunkin would agree with you. In fact, Yunkin has explicitly said that on many occasions, as has Gadara, teach all the history, the good and the bad. I think that's what they say they want to do. And then what do they do? They put in bills that would actually prohibit you from learning any of the bad. Well, this bill on inherently divisive concepts, so the critics of this bill say this is very broad. And so is there a danger that, let's say, slavery, slavery is a pretty inherently divisive concept, right? So like teaching about it might, slavery is a violation of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, clearly, right? So is teaching about slavery prohibited under the bill? I mean, these are the kinds of things that the Education Committee is going to have to wrestle with. And that's why this is a bad bill. Michael, it's, it's plain and simple. It's not well thought out. And also, schools should be teaching inherently divisive concepts because that's how you get new thoughts to emerge and new ideas and honest debate and exactly what schools are for. Somebody from the Heritage Foundation, which is an organization that has a reputation of trying to advocate for segregationist causes throughout the last 30, 40 years, should not be getting put in charge of our education system, which up until now was one of the best. Yeah, well, what about like privilege walk and privilege bingo? I mean, privilege bingo does seem a little, I mean, I don't know, a little tongue in cheek. Um, the privilege walk thing, though, I mean, it does seem like a pretty serious way. I was, you know, when Gadara brought this up, I asked one of the other reporters in the press room at the Pocahontas building if he had ever heard of this thing called the privilege walk. And he's pretty fresh out of college. And he said, yeah, actually, we I, I took a class on whiteness in, in college and we did a privilege walk. And um, so, I mean, like this is it does seem like a way to be able to identify and think about your own privilege. A, a lot of people, man, they're, they're triggered by this concept of privilege. White privilege really triggers a lot of people. And so, I mean, this is the kind of thing the new administration is going to have a, a focus on the, uh, you know, privilege walks, privilege bingo, you know, as Gadara says, any situation where kids are told that they're a victim or a supremacist. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody's telling the kids that they're victims or supremacists. And the activity of a privilege walk forces participants to confront the ways in which society privileges some individuals over others based off inherited genetic traits, and it's designed to get participants to reflect on the different areas in their lives where they have privilege, as well as areas where they don't. And we didn't do this when I was in school, at least not that I can recall. And if we had, it, maybe it wouldn't have taken me so long to recognize my privilege, which, by the way, that kind of privilege can also be a blinder, because when that privilege promotes mediocre white men, you get really bad outcomes or at least less desirable outcomes than you would if you had equity-focused playing field. Okay, let's get to listener mail. 
This question comes from Twitter. One of our original followers, at Like I Give a Damn, asked, quote, will the House of Delegates have special elections this year under the new maps? What's the latest on this? Well, Michael, what's the latest? Well, it looks like it's a legal question that will be determined in the federal courts. And the the real question here is, does the person who filed the lawsuit have standing to bring it? So this is guy, Paul Goldman, a very, very colorful figure. Um, if you want to hear more from Paul Goldman himself, I would encourage you to check out a podcast that's one of my favorite podcasts called The Burke Files with Lauren Victoria Burke. She actually interviewed Paul Goldman on one of her recent podcasts. And, um, you know, I have to admit, Thomas, that I've been in many court hearings where they talk about standing and my eyes kind of glaze over and I'm in my mind, I'm thinking, can we just get on to the merits of the case? Like the merits of the case are like way more interesting than the standing stuff. And I just, I, you know, kind of tune them out when they're talking about standing. But that's actually where it comes down to here. Like, does Paul Goldman have standing to bring this lawsuit or not? And that the the entire fate of the potential for a special election sort of rests on that. Um, we're kind of running out of time, too, because like if you wanted to have the special election in November, uh, you would need to have a primary. And, you know, there are deadlines for getting names on the ballot and signatures of people to get to qualify to be on the ballot. And all, there are all kinds of deadlines that need to happen. And, you know, it's it's like February already. Right. So, like, do we even have time? Is this would the calendar allow a special election this year? That's unclear. Um, and it's also unclear whether or not Paul Goldman has standing to bring the case. So it actually does seem kind of unlikely. I think, you know, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, the conventional wisdom was that, yeah, we were going to have a special election. Thomas, I think that's changed actually in recent weeks. I think I think the new conventional wisdom is, no, we're not going to have a special election. We're just going to go into 2023, you know, and have the regular election at that time. But uh, it would be fun to have a special election. I mean, fun for me, but I guess it wouldn't be fun for the candidates. But uh, yeah, what's your sense of whether or not we're going to have a special election this year or not? Well, I guess it'll be up to that one judge and whether or not Paul Goldman has standing. And that is a really fascinating outcome. And I don't know if the members do or don't want to have a special election this year. There were some recent poll numbers out of Glenn Youngkin that's that suggests that the Republicans are already underwater after 10 days of governing. And if that's going to be the pace, then maybe they do want uh, to have an election this year. But also, a lot of the incumbents who got redistricted, and and as we talked about in our redistricting episode, a lot of those incumbents are looking at whether or not they can move. And if they want to move, that really compresses the timeline that they have to get all of that done, set up in place, and run a campaign. You're just going to physically run out of time before too long. And you might see a hybrid scenario emerge as well, where they're not allowed to wait all the way until November 2023, but they have to have a special maybe sometime in early next year, like May or so. I don't know what's going to happen on this. And I think that's what makes it so fascinating and a burning question. All right, well, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Michael Town of the League of Conservation Voters. Now, he's going to give us the scoop on efforts to get rid of the Clean Economy Act and leave the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative and even strip the Air Pollution Control Board of the power to regulate air pollution. We'll be right back. It's true that some things change as we get older, but if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause, and MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. 
Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Lauren Victoria Burke, host of the Burke File podcast, available wherever pods are cast. You're listening to Pod Virginia with Michael Pope and Thomas Bowman. And we're back on Pod Virginia. We're joined by the executive director for the Virginia League of Conservation Voters, Michael Town. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you, Michael. So the burning question is, what's the future of the Clean Economy Act? At the beginning of session, House Republican Majority Leader Terry Kilgore said that the new Republican majority is not interested in wholesale rollback. But then Delegate Nick Freitas introduced a bill that would, in fact, be a wholesale rollback. What should we expect from that House Bill 118? You know, that's a, a really good question. I wish I could read the future. You know, it's interesting that I think when not only did the majority leader make that statement, but I think we had heard earlier from the new Speaker of the House, Todd Gilbert, that they were going to be pragmatic and think not really coming after laws like uh, the Clean Economy Act. And already we've seen, I think we have between that, I think we're going to talk a little bit about uh, clean cars and, and the regional greenhouse gas initiative. Between those three landmark environmental policies, we've already seen 20 pieces of legislation attacking those in part or in whole. And so I think this is going to be a, 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 you know the, the Republican caucus in the House. Uh, I think that they're, some of them are really gunning for these laws, and uh, we're going to have to uh, do everything we can to defend them. You said 20 bills in part or in whole. What are some of the highlights of those 20 bills? Are, are there any that we should be keeping an eye out for? Yeah, so I think you had already mentioned uh, Delegate Freitas's bill. That's House Bill 118. That repeals numerous VCEA provisions and repeals the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, uh, among other things as well. There's a number of pieces of legislation that go after retiring coal plants in Virginia. And so where uh, the majority leader, Terry Kilgore, uh, had mentioned that he uh, did not want to appeal the whole, repeal the whole VCEA, he's actually put in legislation to repeal parts of it. Interestingly, he is the one Republican in the House of Delegates that voted for the law to begin with. And so I guess he's had a little bit of a change of heart uh, as he's moved into leadership. You know, and Terry's an expert on these issues. He ran the Commerce and Labor Committee in the in the House of Delegates before when the Republicans last had control. Uh, so he understands these issues well. And um, I think he's, you know, he recognizes maybe uh, in this new political environment that uh, he might want to reconsider some of his past votes. It's lots of these bills, these 20 bills, many of them attack certain parts of the Clean Economy Act or certain parts of Reggie. Some of them are full out repeals. I know like Senator Stewart in the Senate side has bills to repeal a couple of them. On the clean cars, Stewart has wholesale repeal. So I think that what we're going to see is we're going to see a number of attacks on the House side, either in full repeal or in part. And then on the Senate side, it looks like there's fewer bills, but the ones at least by uh, Senator Richard Stewart look to be wholesale repeal of uh, these really important environmental protections. So you mentioned the clean car mandate. I want to ask about that. So when the Democrats were in power, they passed a law that puts like a mandate on car dealers that 8% of new vehicle sales must be zero emission vehicles. So uh, will Republicans be able to roll that back? I think that they're going to make a really good attempt at doing so. That legislation passed on party line votes in both the House and the Senate last year. The Senate hasn't changed. So we expect that there's a really good chance we're going to be able to preserve the statute as it passed last year. And, you know, it's really interesting where 8% does not sound like a lot of cars, but it, it, is a, it is a mandate on the auto dealers. The auto dealers actually came out last year in support of this legislation because they know that this is the future. And they already are having a hard time getting electric vehicles onto their car lots because the cars that the electric vehicles that are sold by the manufacturers 
are going to states that have these types of laws already in place. So knowing that the Virginia Auto Dealers Association actually like showed a lot of courage in coming out and joining us in support of this legislation. Now, there's other things that we want to get done uh, to make sure that we have a robust, healthy electric vehicle market in Virginia. Like we would like to see rebates uh, so that you can get a rebate when you buy an electric vehicle. And we'd like to see more charging stations across the Commonwealth. And now we're working with our strange al alliance with the auto dealers in protecting this legislation, and then also working with the car manufacturers to see if we can get these other uh, conditions in place to make this marketplace really work for Virginia. And so I think because of that support of not just the environmentalists, but actually the marketplace, the dealers and the manufacturers, I think we're going to have a really good shot at preserving uh, these laws and hopefully make some additional progress as well in the coming years. You mentioned the charging stations. I want to follow up on that. So um, the Alexandria delegation of Senator Adam Eben and Delegate Elizabeth Bennett Parker both have bills on these charging stations, specifically the parking spots at these charging stations that basically if you park there and you don't have an electric vehicle, that you could be you know, liable for some sort of punishment. Um, what Explain the politics of parking a non-electric vehicle at a spot that's reserved because there's a charging station there. Sure. Now you buy an electric vehicle, you want to be able to park and charge a car. One of the great things about electric vehicles is that, you know, when you, when you go to the gas pump to fill up your car with gas, typically, it, it, of course, unless you're, you don't have, unless you're broke, you're filling up your tank. So you only go to the gas station when you, when you, uh, you know, when you're empty. And when you have an electric vehicle, you can charge it a little bit at a time. So you go to the store. If there's a charging station, you park in that spot. You plug in your car. You go into the store. You come out. Your car just got 15 minutes of uh, or 30 minutes of, of charging and go on to the next place. If you get to your spot and there's an SUV parked in, in the one charging spot in the, in the parking lot, you're probably not going to be too happy about it. And so – uh, with more electric vehicles on the roads, this is more of a type of problem that we're finding people running into. And uh, I think uh, Senator Eben and, and uh, uh, Delegate Bennett Parker are looking at ways to make sure that, hey, you know, we're reserving these spots for certain customers, uh, certain you know, people who drive certain cars. Uh, we should respect that. And uh, I think uh, I think that legislation actually might might stand a chance. But it gets to, I think, the broader point of uh, the capacity to be able to handle the marketplace. As we see more electric vehicles on the road, there's going to be demand for more charging stations. As we put more charging stations on, there's probably going to be more demand for electric vehicles. We need to make sure that the marketplace and the infrastructure actually match up and are keeping pace with each other uh, to make it so that you know you can go live your life and drive your car without having to worry about uh, where you're going to get it charged. Mike, let's pivot to Reggie. Yeah. Glenn Youngkin campaigned on leaving the regional greenhouse gas initiative known as Reggie. And now that he's governor, he's launched a review laying the groundwork to leave the multi-state compact. Will Virginia be saying goodbye to Reggie? You know, one of the th things that I think is really important for the public to realize is, is that um, at least those who are paying attention to politics and wondering how, you know, these, these bills passed, are they going to be repealed? Every single one of these laws was introduced and supported by one of the Senate Democrats. And so they all are working to protect, you know, their pieces of legislation. This isn't Virginia LCB's regional greenhouse gas initiative. This is Linwood Lewis's regional greenhouse gas initiative. So that, that's one. So on the political side, I feel like, you know, we've got, we've got the votes to protect that law. But then on the policy itself, I think this is the most important that, you know, as we're looking at how do we do our part in Virginia to help address, address this global problem of climate change, one of the key components to good public policy is making sure it actually works for Virginians. And so what the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative has done for us is by joining with all these northern and mid-Atlantic states on working together as a compact to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and pollution. We're helping public health. The second thing is we're, that we're doing is we're generating revenue. So when power companies don't actually cut the pollution, they have to pay. And when they pay, we're taking those funds and we're putting them to really good causes. The two things that Virginia's uh, Reggie revenues go to pay for, the first 
is coastal resiliency, making sure that the communities in Virginia that are being impacted day to day by flooding, sea level rise and flooding events, that those communities actually have resources to help address those problems. Virginia has billions of dollars in unmet needs to address flooding. And this fund is helping us pay to fix those problems. And then the second thing that the Reggie revenue does is it goes to give energy efficiency programs to low income and moderate income families. And so where you have disadvantaged communities, communities where people are struggling to pay their electric bills, we're able to invest money, not just to subsidize paying their electric bill, but actually to make their homes more energy efficient so their electric bills drop in cost. And so far in just one year, Virginia has generated over $100 million to put towards those programs. Now, on the energy efficiency piece, that's great. That's, that's really going to change a lot of people's lives and give a, make, make it much easier for so many Virginia families to make ends meet. On the coastal resiliency piece, it's still a drop in the bucket of what we need, but at least it's a head start and we're making progress. So I think those policy and benefits that Reggie is bringing to Virginia, on top of the political environment that we're facing, is going to make it a lot more compelling for us to convince those senators that what they did was the right thing and make sure that we can defend that. That also makes it really difficult for the governor uh, to be able to roll back this progress, and we hope that we're able to keep him at bay. One follow-up to that, Mike, is Virginia's businesses need a stable policy environment to function effectively. So how should businesses be thinking about some of these retrograde policy proposals from the Republicans? I think that's a really great question, Thomas. I mean, our power companies, they hate risk. They put so much financial investment in building a power grid so that we have reliable electricity. If the laws keep changing underneath them every few years, then they're going to be making investments here, and then they're going to have to stop, and then they're going to have to go back and make investments there. That's just really bad economics for those companies, which means it's bad economics for Virginians because we're the ones who ultimately pay that price. And so I'm hoping that the power companies, and of course, you know, we don't always agree with the power companies. In fact, up until passing these laws, we fought with them uh, year in and year out. But I think what we have an opportunity to do is to have one system that moves forward. And that way there is more certainty, less risk. And that also means more businesses. So, you know, even with uh, the Clean Economy Act, we're building manufacturing jobs in Hampton Roads so that we can build offshore wind facilities, not just in Virginia, to help build the machines necessary to build the windmills out in the Virginia's coast. But by having that here, we're going to be able to export those technologies up and down the East Coast and put high-paying white-collar jobs in Hampton Roads uh, and blue-collar jobs and green-collar jobs in Hampton Roads, bringing manufacturing here. That's good for the economy. That's good for the job market. That's going to bring other high-tech companies to Virginia, all on the backs of cleaning up our environment. You add any risk to that, and those companies are going to, be, are going to question whether or not Virginia is the right place to do business. And I don't think that that's what, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, I don't think any of us want that to happen. Let's talk about the Air Pollution Control Board. Now, I know there's an effort to strip the Air Pollution Control Board of regulating air pollution, which I have to say sounds kind of Orwellian. Like, what's the point of having an Air Pollution Control Board if they're not regulating air pollution? What's going on with, with that? You know, this this I've been doing this work for quite a long time. Uh, I think this is the... Uh, I, I first started my first job in the environmental community in 1995. And one of the first fights that we fought was a project called the King William Reservoir, where the uh, city of Newport News wanted to flood a creek uh, off of the Mattapunai River in King William County and build a huge reservoir. And with that reservoir, they were going to uh, sell water to other uh, localities in uh, eastern Virginia. And environmental groups and local citizens in King William and King and Queen County fought that project, and eventually won. After 17 years of fighting that project, they won. Along the way, uh, we would get a good decision from the State Water Control Board. And when the State Water Control Board would vote right, you'd see bills at the legislature uh, from uh, politicians, usually from Newport News, trying to get rid of or remove the power of the State Water Control Board. And that's exactly what we're seeing here decades later, just with the Air Board, where there was two decisions. One, on the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, where the Air Pollution Control Board approved Virginia joining 
the uh, Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. And the second decision was when uh, the Air Pollution Control Board, uh, citing the Environmental Justice Act that was passed uh, two years ago as a reason to deny a compressor station outside of the town of Chatham for the Mountain Valley Pipeline. And so politicians get angry, their you know, contributors get angry and say, we wanted that permit. I can't believe you uh, denied that permit. So let's get rid of the process that allowed that decision to be made. And that's what's happening here. And frankly, I, I think that's uh, it, it, it's ridiculous. You know, Virginia, is, this, this is a great process where we actually have citizens, experts that are appointed by governors and not just one governor. Every governor rotates on people that they get to appoint onto this board so that we actually have community members who are making decisions for communities rather than just bureaucrats or politicians. And so by having those citizens on there, and then every governor being able to put their own people on, Glenn Youngkin is going to be able to shape the Air Pollution Control Board in, uh, with people who think like him and have, share his philosophy over time. But I guess that's not good enough, that they would rather, because whoever did, disliked these decisions, they feel like if we can just re get rid of the Air Pollution Control Board uh, and their author at least their authority, maybe have them there anyway, but not actually be able to make these decisions, uh, then we can just rest those decisions with uh, the political appointees at, at the Department of Environmental Quality, then I guess they will get the decisions that they want. Well, we think that's bad public policy. We think that's a huge shift in the way that Virginia has traditionally made these types of decisions. And although we don't, there's many decisions environmentalists have just have been disappointed with or have uh, objected to that have been made by the Air Board or the Water Board. We think that the process is a fair process. We think it's a very democratic process, and more than anything, it's a Virginia process, and we're going to fight to defend it. I've got what sounds like a silly question for you, but is a clean environment in the public interest? That sounds like an academic debate, but it has drastic real-world consequences. Mike, can you explain the debate over whether a clean economy is in the public interest? Yeah, that's a, uh, it's an interesting one that I think sometimes we even get confused about here in the environmental community. And I think that what you're, you know, this, this term, the public interest, is it's not just a, a, an academic term, it's actually a legal term. And so when, you know, when we, especially when you look at energy policy in the State Corporation Commission, the public interest is a really important factor. And so when uh, we pass laws that deal with like solar energy or coal, you know, coal plants, you build a coal plant, there's a coal plant in Wise County uh, that uh, is, was famous when uh, there was a period of time back in the mid 2000s uh, where uh, the state was considering deregulating its electric sector, and they came back and decided to re-regulate it. And when they did, one of the things they did is they made sure that this coal plant in Southwest Virginia was in the public's interest. And what that did, did is it meant that the State Corporation Commission, the, those who would typically decide whether or not that coal plant should be built, part of their, their hands were somewhat tied because they had to say, well, actually, this legislature has decided that this is in the public interest. And that moved that plan forward. And often we see the same types of things happen with clean energy, where we want to show that we think that the that solar energy, not coal energy, is more in the public's interest. And so when you write these laws, how you define that, not just whether you do define it, but how you define it and under what criteria you make those determinations is really important. And so these are debates that go back and forth across party line. There's Democrats and Republicans who agree that we shouldn't be determining what's in the public interest. There's Democrats and Republicans that think, of course, we're, we're lawmakers. It is our duty to determine what's in the public interest. And in the advocacy world, sometimes we think something should be, and sometimes we think something shouldn't be, and we have those debates as well. And uh, it's, a, it's a really big factor that, um, you know, it doesn't, at the end of the day, it doesn't determine necessarily whether something is or isn't built, but it definitely puts a, a, a thumb on the scale as to whether or not we think that something should be built or not. And the way that we look at it is if it's, if it's good for the public and we think that these are policy changes that need to be made in order to address significant social uh, issues or to help a marketplace move in the directions that we think it should, then we might consider uh, making something in the public interest. And I know our opponents are thinking either the opposite, but probably the same or have the same philosophy when it comes to uh, you know what it is that they want to move forward and what they what they want to block. 
All right. One last question, Mike Town. We really appreciate your time. So Andrew Wheeler, is this guy going to get the job or not? So um, during his testimony to the House and the Senate, Youngkin's pick for the environmental secretary presented himself as someone who would like uh, whose past was that he reduced air pollution and that he cleaned up Superfund sites and that he expanded transparency. But then people on the other side of the issue say the rhetoric doesn't match the reality. Will Andrew Wheeler end up being a cabinet secretary? You know, this has uh, been an interesting fight. And for those who don't know, Andrew Wheeler uh, was the second EPA administrator for most of uh, Donald Trump's presidency. And prior to being at EPA, Andrew Wheeler was a lobbyist, uh, and he worked, in, he worked on Capitol Hill uh, before that. And as a lobbyist, one of his biggest clients was Murray Energy, which is one of the biggest uh, coal uh, companies in the country, and one with one of the worst environmental and uh, 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 not just environmental records, uh, but compliance records. They, uh, they've been fined more than most any other polluter in the United States of America. And that's who he lobbied for. So he lobbied for coal companies and he goes runs EPA. And now he's been tapped by Glenn Youngkin to be his secretary of natural and historic resources. So part of his cabinet, pretty much the top environmentalist in Virginia. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. There were a couple of things that he said in his testimony. He's, he's a slick guy and he's very talented. I mean, he has great resume, uh, you know, of um, uh, if you look at where he worked, when you look at what his record is in those jobs, it'd be it's very concerning for those who care about Virginia's environment. And I think that uh, two things that he said today that really got at us. I'm sure that he can twist uh, reality in a way to you know make himself look a little more favorable. But one of the things that he argued was that when he was at EPA, he was asked a question about Chesapeake Bay funding and what had happened during the Trump administration was that funding for Bay Cleanup had been brought from like, I can't remember the number, it was like 70 some, $73 million all the way down to $7 million. So a 90% reduction uh, in the Chesapeake Bay program. And he supported that. He has, He's on record as supporting that. But you would not have known that by his testimony today about how he talked about how much he has done to protect the Chesapeake Bay. So I think the those who have to make the decision, and I think, uh, you know, I feel pretty confident that many of the Democrats in the state Senate are going to oppose him. I hope all of them do. And I think when they look at the record and compare his words to what his actions were, they're going to be very concerned with what he tried to convince them of. But the last question that was asked of him, I thought that was, was the most amazing. Senator Joe Morrissey from Richmond had asked him the question of, you know, you seem like a smart guy and you're really compelling and persuasive. And he said something like, you know, why weren't you able to be so persuasive with the president, your boss, in convincing him about climate change? And Andrew Wheeler tried to make it out that he and Donald Trump never talked about climate change. And here you have the top environmental official for the president of the United States, who is, while the whole time that he is in his job, they are rolling back this environmental protection they are doing, moving forward on this and mo moving back on that and slashing this thing about climate change and that thing about climate change. And he tried to pull off the, uh, the line that he never talked to Donald Trump about climate change. Now, maybe that's true. I seriously doubt that's true. But let's say for a moment it's true. Why in the world not? And why is it he worked for Jim Inhofe, U.S. Senator from Oklahoma, one of the biggest climate deniers ever? He works for Donald Trump, who said that uh, climate change was a hoax. And Glenn Youngkin, a couple of weeks before his uh, election, he was uh, on, on TV with, uh, I think, Wavy, down, uh, Wavy 3 down in Norfolk, and he was asked about climate change. He was like, I don't think I'm smart enough to know what causes climate change. This guy seems to connect himself with some people that don't really believe in climate change, and yet we're supposed to believe that Andrew Wheeler is going to come into this job and do everything he can uh, to protect Virginia's environment. I, I think that there's a lot more to this. Um, I look forward to having these conversations with uh, the Democrats to make sure that they get the truth and facts about his his record, because I think that when they see these facts, uh, they're going to be deeply concerned. And I think that his uh, his nomination is in trouble.
Yeah, there's a lot of young voters who believe that climate change is the only issue that matters. So I imagine, Mike, that we're going to have a lot to say on this issue in future episodes. So thank you so much for your time here, Mike Town of the Virginia League of Conservation Voters. Michael, Thomas, thank you so very much for uh, having me. I look forward to coming back. And now this from Steve Artley. I was counting the votes late one night when my eyes were entreated to a devious sight. For the monster from his grave jumped to, grabbed his knife, and to the map he flew. He did the splits. But gerrymander splits. Redistrict splits. It was election blitz. He did the splits. A GOP hit. He did the splits. It put votes in their midst. The former commies were having fun, seeing us cheating on everyone. Chopping regions to skew the polls, democracy burning on a bed of red coals. We did the splits. The gerrymander splits. We did splits. It was election blitz. We did the splits. It brings Republican hits. We did the splits. The gerrymander splits. George Washington called out from his grave. When was it we became home of the knave? All founding fathers were quick to agree. Honest Abe asked, Whatever happened to the party of me? It's now the splits. The gerrymander splits. Redistrict splits. Digging the graveyard pits. It's now the splits. It tops all the hits. It's now the splits. The gerrymander splits. It's now the splits. The gerrymander splits. The gerrymander splits. Digging the graveyard pits. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pod Virginia. Transcriptions are by Emily Cottrell. Satirical spots are written, performed, and produced by Steve Artley. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show. We'll be back again next week with the next episode of Pod Virginia. Pod Virginia is a production of Jack Leg Media, LLC. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.